now coming to you live from the Waldorf Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6. It's usual suspects Gary K. Wolf and Jonathan Strand with one of our favorite guests, the remarkable Kids Johnson on the Coot Street Podcast. Hi, everybody. Jonathan. Okay. Hi, kids. Welcome to the podcast again. <laughs> Jonathan has decided yeah. we're now going to be an in-game program. We're, we're, we're going to talk like this right into the microphone. Oh, are we? Okay, we can do that thing. We're going to be all smoky. I don't even know where the mic is on this, actually. <laughs> well, it's, it's also that people can hear me. And also, Gary mentioned it, and I thought, if I do that Muppet thing again, I'll explode. So yeah. I, I went this one time. Yeah. The, the, what Recent history tells me every time I say I'm not going to do it, people say you should do it. And then... So, anyway, welcome. It's great to have you back on this, your sixth appearance on the Coot Street Podcast. Thanks. It's great to be back. It's always fun to talk to you guys. Um, and I always feel moderately schooled at the end of it. <laughs> and when, when we spoke last, it was sort of, the, you know, the bitter depths of, of, of a Kansas winter. And I believe it was snowing in Chicago. I think it was February. Yeah, it was- it was bitter everywhere but where you were, um, except that we don't have acid spitting spiders and, you know, giant, you know, baby eating hoofed things. <laughs> or maybe you don't. I forget. Maybe that's Edward Rice Burroughs. I always get you two mixed up. Well, look, look it balances. I mean, the sun tries to kill us. The snow tries to kill you. It, it all balances out. Seems fair. <laughs> That's right. It seems fair. But anyway, when we were speaking back in back in February, we were talking about outsider art. We didn't get around to talk about animals and stuff. But it's been kind of like a, a busy year. How have you been? Um, I've been pretty good. You broke up for just a second there, so I'm assuming that what you said um but yeah life is life has been good since i last talked to you i adopted a um amiable very small uh somewhat effective cat um and she is six pounds full grown which means that she's really sort of a demi cat or maybe a hemi cat (laughs) and she has no name i've now owned her for something like eight months and she has not yet gotten a name Except for you, wretched beast. She gets that a lot. <laughs> so what's a semi-effective cat? Well, she's missing her front claws, okay. um, which means well, she she has many high plans and great aspirations, which she cannot play out, um, which is which would fit her into Game of Thrones pretty effectively, I figure. Um, but she's uh, um, and she's quite charming, but um, sort of feckless, uh, and um, worships. All creatures of the male persuasion. Um, she loves low voices, um, which is why I'm gonna. I am, of course, gonna be taking pills to make my voice get lower for my cat. <laughs> for your cat. For, your... for my cat. cat you yes. Did you get this cat from a shelter? Yes. Yeah. She was a rescue, and it was a, a tragic story, which I won't go into painstaking detail. But she was from. Indiana and the rescue organization was run by a former student of mine. And when I, I one time, this is what happens, people. One time you say, maybe you want a pet. And all of a sudden they come out of the woodwork. So she said, I'll meet you. She drove seven hours with a cat meowing in the back of the car. And when I saw this cat, I said, I have no interest in this cat. It was a small, <laughs> ratty looking, sort of cranky anti-social beast i was like not interested but i can't just send her back with a cat after seven hours so so i brought this this little animal home and 
she has become a cherished part of the household, um, in part because she's black and so she blends with all my clothes. Uh, so I don't have to wear hairs all over everything. So that, that's a pro tip, people. Get your your cats to blend with your clothing. <laughs> which, which is exactly my problem because I, I have some very nice black sweaters and things. My cat is a tabby. Also a rescue for 14 years ago at this point. Uh, also without front claws. Also semi-competent. Um, it, it does <laughs> raise the issue. Well, it's... It, it's he knows how to do certain things, um, but 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 not everything, uh, and he doesn't respond. But but it raises the issue of writers and their cats, which is a cliche, cliche issue because most of the writers I know in our field in science fiction and fantasy tend to have cats, and except for the military science fiction guys, yeah. I guess they have dogs. Yeah, they have, they have dogs. big dogs. They have big beautiful dogs. Yeah, I know. I, I have to say that I. I really was resisting getting a cat because that's what people do. That's what single ladies of a certain age do, let alone people who write science fiction or fantasy of a certain age. And so I fought. I was like, I really wanted to get like another big dog because I'd had a German Shepherd and I loved him. But but I just couldn't justify having a giant German Shepherd. Um, they take a lot of work is the problem. Mm. Um they're more trouble than children, and <laughs> a cat is really just about the same amount of trouble as a child. I figure. No. So, no. Uh, so I know I'm. I know I'm a cliche. It's tragic but true, and I do dote on her rather. Maybe that's why I'm refusing to give her a name because that would be just one step too close to preciousness. <laughs> I think it's only a disturbing cliche though, Kidge, when she's joined by many more of her friends. Oh, yes. I have a friend whose theory is that you don't become a crazy cat person until you have the number of sort of sentient adults in the household plus one is an acceptable number of cats, but plus two becomes crazy. <laughs> so for me, it's like two cats and even two cats to my mind, while they would entertain each other, two cats is a fair amount of cats. It's many more than twice one. <laughs> yes, it's when you get to That's eight true. and you start going, oh, now I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble now. Don't tell anyone. Yeah. If they're all black, though, and they don't have names, it won't matter. I could have an infinite number of cats if they were all black and had no name, because nobody would know. In fact, <laughs> that's not. Yeah. It's in true. fact, if they were all in the box you, and you didn't know whether they were alive or dead, they'd all be theoretical. If they were all in the box, I'm guessing they'd all be dead. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Um, it's a Schrodinger's box. Just, just as a service announcement to anyone listening to the podcast, please don't put your cats in a box. Do not put your cat, except when they want you to. Let them find and their own way into the box. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, oh, yes, so. now I am a cat owner, and that means I have new insights into what it is, what it means to try to write with something batting at your keyboard. Well, I guess that, that's a neat segue as well, because whilst you are there in the frozen, icy tundra of Kansas with your black cat. Exactly. Um, have you been writing and working away? What have you been doing? Yes. Well, yes. And the answer is um, long and crazy because <laughs> I had been working on uh, an enormous book, uh, a huge uh, adventure set in 18th century. It had a lot of science. Um, it had a lot of Central Asia. Um, and 
it kept mutating under my hand. So by about June 30th, I had about 170,000 words of a geopolitical thriller and realized wow. I don't want to write a geopolitical thriller set in that time about those people. So I just tucked it aside and then in a dizzying five weeks wrote a 60,000 word sequel to Wind in the Willows. <laughs> okay. Right. Yeah, and you know that and $4.95 will get me a latte it turns out. Um it's uh I'm really I really like it and I think it's I think it's charming and it's smart. I've showed it to several publishers, I've showed it to an agent and everybody says um the same thing. They say we think it's brilliant but there's no possibility we can sell it. <laughs> So, so at this moment, it is sitting on an editor's desk while I decide what to do when she does the inevitable and turns it down. Uh, Did I lose everybody? I lost all y'all. That's because I was talking. Okay, okay. No, no, no. no. <laughs> Just 60,000 words of Wind in the Willow sequel. Right, right. Was, well, was, so, about 20 years ago, somebody wrote the sequel. Yes, Hello? actually. Go ahead. William Horwitz. William, William yeah. Horwitz. Uh, Wrote the monks, the the moles of Duncton Manor, or something like that, and the then he was asked, yellow. right, right, and uh, so he wrote, um, he wrote three, three book or two books, Wind in the Willows, and then his sequel, The Willows in Winter, which That's is it. too bad because it was such a great title. I wanted to call mine The Willows in Summer, but of course I couldn't. Um, and then the second one is called Toad Triumphant, and they're generally quite successful. Um, it was interesting sitting down to write a sequel to something that's a century old, because there's so many differences. And, you know, I'm not English, I'm a woman, I'm 21st century woman. Um, there's no women really anywhere in uh, The Wind in the Willows. And uh, Horwood dealt with it, had to deal with this as well, he, which he dealt with by having a fabulously charismatic toadess turn up who is a sculptress from France um, and uh, has a, a young nephew uh, who is very affected called the Chevalier. Uh, so, so Harwood did good work, did good work. But I realized there weren't any places for girls. You know, that, no. I adored those stories when I was a kid, but there was just no place for a girl to be. And that got me onto sort of my latest thing, which is that I'm, uh, and this is maybe a topic we can talk about uh, a little more broadly, um, mm -hmm. because, you know, as you all know, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, uh, very problematic right now, yeah. um, and understandably yeah. so. Um, he was a racist, he was a sexist, although he's much more of a racist than a sexist. And he is, of course, our, our fearless leader. He's the World Fantasy Award head. Um, mm. But because mm. I was sort of revisioning, trying to reclaim Wind in the Willows uh, for a reading where a possibility that women belong in this world, you know, not just little girls, but women in the bachelor women in the same way bachelor men belong in that world. I started thinking about where women fit in Lovecraft. And that's the big project I'm working on right now is a novella, um, which its name has changed a number of times. But but it, the working title is the Ulthar Women's College. And uh, I'm really enjoying 
thinking about this I'm stuff gone. and trying to figure out, is there a way Hello? to redeem Lovecraft? Yeah. It sounds like a fascinating I, idea. It really does. How, how far progressed are you? Well, um, I got partway in and realized that I wasn't comfortable with my voice. I have it. I have the plot. Um, the whole thing is already plotted, and I, I feel I feel as though it'll be interesting. Um, but I took a break to write some other shorter things just for fun, for my own amusement, and so that's what I've been doing uh, the last two weeks. I'll be getting back to this probably in a couple of weeks when I finish this current project. Yeah. Um, so yeah. it's been fun. Um, I've written, I realized I've written something like 135,000 words this year, which is amazing for me. That's, I've had decades that I wrote less than that. And, and you've also got this 170,000 word novel sitting in the right. background with, you got to work out what to do with. Right, exactly. Um, so all of that, which means my spring is going to be very busy. Um, and, um, and it's fun to be writing again because I had stopped for a long time. Um, one of the things I realized when I finished the big the big book was it's very easy for a writer to stray from the things she loves, for a book to sort of lure you down side trails and then mug you and change the book on you. So uh, so that was an important life lesson as well. If I, what I like to write about is loyalty or uh, dark times or things like that, then maybe I should just keep writing about loyalty or dark times. Well, there's something to that, but I was going to say, if you've written, first of all, this um, sequel novel to Wind in the Willows, and you're writing this major you know, this major novella about Lovecraft involving women, does this now become, in a sense, a way of looking at genre history that can involve women? Yes, Absolutely. That I think that is exactly what I, I, I'm starting to do is I'm I'm really am trying to say you know how can we relook what what would Edgar Rice Burroughs look like if he had had any understanding of what women were like what 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 is possible is there a way to sort of reclaim Lovecraft and the Dream Quest of Unknown Cadith was my favorite story when I was growing up and there's no females none I mean yeah. and this is why I think he's much much worse a racist than a sexist because he's full of just just completely objectionable unsavory mm. language about race but he doesn't mention sex at all um, there are no women ever in his stuff, no, that, I mean, that, that, and, which is not dissimilar from Horwood, actually, or I'm not Horwood, but from Graham, actually. Again, a complete absence of women, and it's like, why, why not? I mean, this is another way to try to re-engage with the canon is to say, well, what else is possible? You know, what else can you do with the riverbank if you put two single ladies, a young mole lady and a young rabbit lady, living in a Boston marriage on the riverbank? But let me get this straight. You're not really talking about reclaiming uh, Kenneth Graham or Lovecraft so, so much as reclaiming those worlds they created. Right, yeah. Finding a place that I, as a woman I am now, I mean, any little girl knows that you read Lord of the Rings for the 12 lines they have about somebody you read and you have like five choices if you like women you if you want to grow up to be someone from lord of the rings you either you get to be the healer you get to be aon or you you, you have a, such a limited array or you get to pretend that one of the boy hobbits is a girl which was my strategy i always assumed mary was a girl because it was more fun that way 
but this got me thinking also um, about all of the other ways that the classic um, the classic canon is gendered when it doesn't need to be. And right now I'm rereading for the 4,278th time uh, Mission of Gravity, um, which is Hal Clement, and it's marvelous adventure story. It takes place on that heavy gra gravity world, world, and there's Barlinen. And there is no reason why any of the aliens are gendered at all, except that oh, really? Hal Clement could not think of, you know, he did not think to give them a neutered pronoun, but all it takes is to neuter the pronouns and the book changes radically because all of a sudden we stop making really? assumptions about who these aliens are. Well, there was something, I think that um, to some extent, Clement's kind of fiction, uh, and he's the best example of it, I think to some extent that was parodied by, by James Blish in stories like Oh, um, the, the seedling stars stories, for example, because what what Clement would do, he would think of these wonderful alien creatures on completely alien planets. And then when it came time to put characteristics into them or, or dialogue into their mouths, he just pulled stuff out of the 30s pulp magazines with the same hard boiled guys and, 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 and tough, well, not even tough dames, basically the same hard boiled guys. That was the in, in sort of defense of of writers that era, that was the only vocabulary he knew. Right, He'd yeah. Never been Which is why, I think, exactly, I mean, it's like, could he, I mean, could, he was a brilliant man, Clement. Could he have, could he have visualized a neutered third, you know, uh, a neutered pronoun that he could have written the entire story in? Quite possibly, maybe, but could he have sold that story? And the answer is probably not. Somebody would said, That's you know, why don't you just call them all he, because they're all he's, right? Um, so, yeah. it, so that becomes an interesting exercise, taking these classic works and then sort of trying to find a place where I as, you know, as an aware woman, but also me, the little girl who read these and adored them, can get in without having to sort of conform to fit, to fit the cracks. So it's been really fun. Uh -huh. Do you think so, you're going to do more of this sort of thing? I mean, you mentioned you've written some short stories of late as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm going to do the Lovecraft thing, definitely. Yeah. Um, and, there, and there are other works. I mean, it's like I'm not really interested in trying to revision chivalric tales or anything like that. And I think there's so many really fine writers who are revisioning heroic and epic fantasy right now. Um, we, don't, I, we don't need somebody to revision Middle Earth for women because there's so many marvelous new worlds being created you know, where women and characters of color exist. So I, so I don't know. I mean, I'll, I'll just see. I mean, there are some other people I look at and I think, you know, you could stood, could have stood to have like a female or two. And Burroughs yeah. is maybe an example that I look at. Um, you know, is Burroughs rehabilitatable? I don't know, you know. Well, I mean, to some extent you're talking about, okay, let me argue for a minute. You're talking about writing characters in Burroughs, who let's say his male characters were not much to speak about either. He didn't exactly like <laughs> character. True that. And, true that. Yeah, you know, Princess of Mars is actually she's not even human. Now that I think about it, Burroughs's women, and with the exception of Jane in the Tarzan books, tend not to be human at all, do they? No. Yeah. Wasn't, wasn't and Jane is Page such a Jane such a type. She's like she is 
the 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 adored. I mean, she's barely a person because she's a role. Yes, and when you talk, yeah, when you talk about revision, I guess the well, here's here's an interesting question for you, as as you say, as 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 somebody who's self consciously self aware, uh, a woman reader and writer looking at this, the one classic example of what most people thought of as successful revisioning was Marion Zimmer Bradley's revisiting the Arthurian legend in the Mist mm-hmm. of Avalon, yeah. which right, revelatory. Yeah. Now that's kind of prob- Is that problematical now? Well, it depends on what you mean. I mean, it's uh, uh, writers, we have the right to try something and, and fail or, you know, take it down our own particular, you know, rabbit hole, uh, you know, which maybe is a dead end, um, you know, which is for all I know, it's like these things I'm doing, it may be that I'll do three of them and then I'll think, okay, I think I've, what I've learned is this. But, you know, so she did do a thing and she did open the door to so many other writers, so many other women um, trying as well. And so to my mind, it's like it was a complete triumph first because it was it was a revisioning in a way that none of us had seen before. It was very liberating, I think, for girls. Um, And I think. And boys, too, I mean, but mostly girls, because here's finally is an Arthurian story where you don't want to just slap everybody involved pretty hard. Um, and I think and then, of course, all these other people who read it or were inspired by it or who wanted to respond to it, who wanted to counter it. It just cracked so many things open for women in fantasy, I think. I think it did. And, and the business, the, the, the awkward business, which has been coming out about not only her husband, but according to her daughter now herself. Uh-huh. Should not change. Should not change our reading of the book. Well, you know, and it's that's challenging and difficult because, of course, it does. You know, yeah. um, I mean, you know, even it's very hard to step away and say, you know, I can judge this work because you know that while this work was being written, these terrible things were being done by the same hands that were writing right. this story, and it's like, how do you reconcile that? Um, and I think everybody ultimately ends up finding their own sort of way of doing it. Um, you know, expunging people from the canon is certainly an extreme strategy, um, and it, but it's a strategy that recommends itself to a certain number of people. Um, and, uh, and I do think that the canon can afford to be, you know, re-confronted periodically, you know, because we do it all the time. It's like, when's the last time you saw a pro-Hitler you know, pro-fascist Nazi story. Yes, it would have been the pulps actually in the 1930s that was being yeah. written. I guess, but I guess never what I'm curious. When you look at, uh, and, and, and I, I think that I've not seen anybody argue about to get back to the Lovecraft business and the the, the Gay and Wilson statue. Um, I haven't heard anybody argue that we shouldn't be reading Lovecraft because of his his personal views. And I guess the same argument could be made about Marianne Zimmer Bradley, that we don't need to avoid her fiction because of her personal behavior, because eventually you're going to get to the point where there are really ugly things that a lot of our favorite writers did and thought and said over time. Mm-hmm. And for what Well, and, and the definition of, um, not to say that, you know, that anything that she did or allegedly did, she or, or her husband, was acceptable in any way, the rules have changed over over the years 
um, at least about certain things. So, so it's been, it's problematic if you say, I'm not going to read anybody who, any male writer in science fiction who ever flirted with a woman who wasn't interested, because that's the field. That's a large part of the field. So you have yeah. to find your own sort of level of comfort. You know, do I avoid the, the ones who are egregiously horrible? Do I just not read them because it reminds me of them? Or, or how do I do this? And I, I don't know. I, I, I really feel that individuals end up having to make their own decisions about what they're comfortable with um, and yeah. how they want to deal with, with, you know, allegations like that. You know, it's a, it's kind of hard for me to think about reading her right now because I think I would be thinking about that while I was reading it. I'd be looking for clues, you know, um, looking right. to see if there was evidence in the in the texts that could be read that way, and that would be a very uncomfortable read for me. Um, I, I guess the other, I, I, you're right. I, I think it's a question of degree. I mean, um, most of us know now, for example, especially. Uh, people who study the history of science fiction like like the three of us do, yeah. that, that Asimov was pretty awful in terms of his attitudes toward women and his behavior yeah. convention oh, yeah. and so forth. But, you know, there's not real... Well, for one thing, there's not an award in in the shape of Asimov, is there? No. no. Okay. No, well, there's a magazine that bear his, bears his name. I mean, magazine arguably his name is as prominent as anybody's could possibly be. That's and true. I think HBO are about to make the Foundation Trilogy... I'm looking trip. forward to that in unrelated news. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I guess the real point is, I mean, you're trying to sort of say, you know, sort of uh, Asimov isn't as, as physically iconic, I guess, as Lovecraft is, but arguably his name these days is almost as much to the fore as, you know, anybody else has been in the history of the field. Oh, yeah, I think too. that's right. And really, I've only heard people talking about the really problematic aspect of his behavior at conventions in the last few years. I mean, the information's been there in the background. I remember hearing it years ago, but nobody actually ever said or did anything about it. Now, when there is a, I don't know what you call it, a roster of problematic people who have been around in the history of the field, his name now features because of the known ways he's behaved badly towards women um, in public. You know, in public. Um, well, I mean... But whether we yeah, stop reading him or not, I don't know. I mean, the, the, the obvious example right now is the whole uh, requires hate thing and whether you continue to read her or not. And mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's not a simple question to answer, is it? Yeah, I mean, I, I've been reading. Uh, I was following some of the requires hate stuff for a while and then realized I was going to have to stop reading it because, I, because it was – there's just so much toxicity going on mm. that – I have to sort of step back from from that periodically, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I mean, watching people sort of navigating through that has been very interesting, um, and you know, one of the it's probably this is a difficult thing to say, but I think it's probably a great thing that this is happening because so many people are being confronted with so much stuff that nobody wanted to think about. Um, so I, I mean, it's it's miserable and it's a terrible sort of stage to be going through. But I do believe that, you know, a year from now, five years from now, we're going to be in much better shape than we were, you know, a year ago. In the same way that Race Fail opened up some doors that had never even been looked at before, you know, and right. we have so 
far to go, but but we have come so far as well. I think the issue of social media has changed the attitude that that we have to deal with this on a minute by minute basis almost because over a period of time, I mean, when Asimov was at his height of being the grand old man of science fiction and apparently doing one egregious thing after another, it was only known by word of mouth among fandom. There was not, there was there was not Twitter when when he no. was doing that. So he, and 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 so immediately these things become worldwide um, recognized on a worldwide basis. I mean, most people, I suspect, uh, reading Hemingway weren't really too much aware of the way Hemingway acted toward women and people who read Ezra Pound weren't really worrying about the fact that he was a fascist. Now that information is on your face 24 hours a day. So you yeah. can't, you can't really make that separation anymore. Right. Yeah. I think that's absolutely true. That um, the individual has become a piece of her work, whether she wants that to be true or not. Right. And I mean, let's let's be honest. If we um, any of the three of us, I don't know my own answer to this question, but if we see uh, Jonathan, you may have seen this. You see a new um, short story, and you haven't read it yet, and it's by um, Requires Hate, Binion and I don't know how to pronounce it. Shrinkawa. Would Would you want to read it? I think I would. Yes. Um... I try to take a different approach to my best of the year reading, which is now most of my reading, than to my private reading. I feel that you have a broader responsibility right, to, to, yeah. to the field at large to, to read and reflect what's there. So where, if I was reading privately, I might currently choose to skip, skip the stories. No, I, I read them and I try to uh, reflect on them Apart from the whole requires hate matter, I think that's something that's incumbent upon me to do. What people do who are not taking that and putting out in public do or is, is entirely different. Uh, and I would well understand if people were more hesitant about reading her. I certainly pick up in the field there's more hesitation in dealing with her. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I've certainly been queried by people who write for me for projects about whether she is or will be involved in the project. And it is mm -hmm. becoming conditional that maybe she would not be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, that's one of those consequences that's hard to sort of work around because it's not one I'm very comfortable with or happy with. Um, yeah, that's difficult. I could see that would be a big challenge. And, you know, you see it, the, it's, it's the same if you deal with Orson Scott Card. I mean, Orson Scott Card has problematic views. He's been very uh, active politically to try and manifest them in the real world there are a lot of issues around those views and some people simply don't want to to be associated with that in any which way mm -hmm. and you have right. to take it into account i mean i find card is a much more sad and uncomfortable case for me than than benjamin i mean benjamin basically has the requires hate history and i try to set it aside with card i loved reading his stuff at a certain time in my life Loved it. I mean, through the mm -hmm. through the eighties, I read read him very e eagerly and actively. But I also happen to have a gay brother and a gay sister. And you're sort of going, well, hang on, this I, I'm now torn. And the way that I go is pretty obvious. I will support my loved ones over this fiction, and I find it horribly problematic. 
and uncomfortable. And I can I, only imagine how Anedia Korafor does feel when she goes home with Howard Lovecraft. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, the, the difference, I think here's a difference, though. Uh, with As far as I know about Sri Danku's fiction that I've read, those those attitudes, if they're, they're not visible in the fiction. I, it seems to me to be extraordinarily humane fiction. Yeah. Um, I was involved, I'm currently involved in a project where, as part of the publicity uh, for, for what I'm doing, they wanted to mention Ender's Game, uh, which is in many ways a terrific book, in many ways an extremely manipulative book. And I didn't, I, I basically told them I didn't want that promoted as part of what I'm doing, not because Ender's Game isn't an important, well-structured story, although, as we all know, John Kessel has done a very good job of deconstructing <laughs> how it failed. It's a, it, it's. But if somebody reads Ender's Game, and see if this argument is, is, is wrong, if somebody reads Ender's Game, they might want to read the sequels, and about three or four sequels in, you start getting a lot of the really problematical attitudes, acted out Islamophobic attitudes, for example, acted out within the fiction. I don't really, my, my sense right now is that if somebody reads Ender's Game and thinks it's a good adventure story and doesn't worry about the, the moral manipulation that goes on in it, that's fine. If somebody starts into that series, they're going to be led into what I consider some very objectionable attitudes on Card's part. Yeah, I can and see I what you're saying. And I, I kind of agree about, I mean, I do agree about that, uh, about Card about that, but, but also, you know, when, when the writers sort of um, the parts of when a writer who who does things that you find objectionable or difficult or challenging is not putting it into his or her writing um, what then you know what do I what do I do about these sort of ardent you know uh, um, sexist who nevertheless is never he's only ever writing about talking ants or something so it doesn't right. come up uh, uh, or the vast number of science fiction writers that we simply don't know about. Because, uh, I say, before the era of social media, you know, how much did we know about the personal views of Eric Frank Russell or... Right, uh, right. Ford Dixon or whoever. Well, if, if we don't know, we can only react to the fiction. And that's probably as clean and clear and simple a situation as you could find. I think mm -hmm. it, it is more challenging when you have objectionable private attitudes and then fiction that doesn't reflect them. Now, I would say that as a reader, I would tend to ignore the uh, objectionable private attitudes. What maybe makes it more problematic for me, and this is why Card becomes such a problematic instance, is if they're really active politically about trying to manifest those views in the real world, and then there's a case of, well, do you want to support them economically because by buying their work or that kind of thing, you are doing right, that. yeah. And so that's a separate issue. So it's, it's, I don't think there's ever, ever going to be a simple, clear-cut response to this. And I don't think either of you would suggest there should be either. You know, it's like Lovecraft. I don't think he should, his work should be decanonized if such a process were possible. But I think probably, first of all, yes, they should change the award in all probability. But also, people should be more aware, and I think everybody is increasingly more aware, of the problematic attitudes, have them noted along with the text and then you can take the text as having been vastly historically influential and important but problematic yeah which it, which in fact we do all the time yeah, and yeah. it's like we read, you know we read victorian books with like just dreadful racism in them with the understanding well yeah that's how that 
that is how they would be talking about this at that time. You know, and hopefully we can see the difference between the artifacts of their time that these works were and where we stand now. Sure. And I think also we tend to believe that um, that humane attitudes, or if we want to say liberal attitudes, are of a piece, whereas they weren't always. For example, when you mentioned Victorian works, one of the books I got, I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Tachyon, no, not Tachyon, uh, Timmy Duchamp at uh, uh, Aqueduct, Aqueduct, The New Amazonia, uh, which is a kind of feminist utopia from, I forget the author's name at the moment. Um, and it, it clearly is an early example of feminist writing, but it's also a pretty unpleasantly racist book at the same time. So the attitudes that we now think are of a piece weren't always of a piece. Yeah, I think that's very true. And and a lot of just sort of erroneous thinking about what what the right thing to do was as well. Oh. You know, um, I'm trying to think of an example of it now at this moment. But, you know, for instance, um, sort of the sexual life of women um, was was... I mean, there there are reasons. There were there were a lot of reasons why that was really looked down on, and there were and people were chemically castrated. Women were chemically castrated with opium um, to mm. keep them from you know to keep them from being sexually viable, from being sexually awake, and that was done at least some of the time was socially with the notion that this is for their good. This is the this is for their own good because if we don't control this, they're gonna be hysterical, they're gonna be out of control, they're not gonna be able to do what they need to do, and they're not gonna be happy. And of course we all know that's complete horse pucky, but but that would that would have been considered a, a, a humane act at that point. And so, so writing about that, reading about that, it's like that would have been humane and we would read that now and we'd say, No, that's kind of atrocious. Mm. I think the argument, and that's 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 the sort of thing which um, which you as a writer have to challenge yourself with more than we we critics do. If you look at the people thinking that, how could they possibly think that's humane? And I could see somebody constructing an argument in 1910 that well, women do have intellectual capacities that ought to be realized, but they're being interfered with by these hysterical right. emotional responses, by their hormones, and therefore all of that hysteria, yeah. Yeah, we're, we're liberating women's potential by doing this. Mm -hmm. Well, and this well, is exactly what happened when they, when they, well, one of the many things that happened when they started sending uh, Native American children to the English-only schools. You know, there were a exactly. lot of reasons, political reasons, um, and a lot of reasons to do with power that went into that. But one of the reasons was, well, it's for their own good. And that was sincerely meant. It was also insincere. But it was there was a sincere sense that if we just get everybody to read English and wear the same clothes, the world will be better and these people will be happier because, of course, this is the apotheosis of human. What we are doing, we Westerners, we Christian Westerners, this is the way humanity should exist. And we're freeing them from these um, mythologies that they've inherited that are completely wrong because they don't have Christ in them. So, so you know, basically, I mean... Our mythology is better than yours. That's kind of the right, history of the world, right. I guess. Oh, alas. <laughs> so, so, so how does it come back to how we should deal with problematic writers like Lovecraft and Marion Zimmer Bradley and Edgar Rice Burroughs? And you could probably throw H. Ryder Haggard in there because his attitude toward women, even though 
she, Ayesha, was a very powerful woman, was your archetypal oh. mother goddess, again, somebody unapproachable and, 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 and archetypally um, destroyed for love of a man. For, for love of yes. someone who, by when you read the book, a completely unworthy man. He's a nice, he is, he's a good-looking, you know, smart guy, but he's no god. You know, so she's basically uh, throwing everything over for, for kind of, when I read that text, I read that as the classic older woman throws everything over for beautiful <laughs> young man text. <laughs> I have not reread it in years, but the way you describe it. And destroys her career and everything. She loses everything because she cannot be separated. And this is like a classical, you know, sort of theory, you know, that 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 she should be, you know, she's penalized. Her sexuality is penalizing her by destroying her. Yeah. And she, she, yeah, but but she's, she's managed to run this hidden kingdom for, what, a thousand years or something? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she, yeah, she's hugely effective at her job. She's very good at her job because she, in a thousand years, she's never met a cute guy from the West. Mm-hmm. Right. That's, <laughs> <laughs> see, that's what it took. She only had to see one blonde, and it was all over. Exactly. It's true for so many of us. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> it's part of the challenge as well, not equating the people who like to read this work with the problematic views because when I see this happen socially, I tend to see it break down into an almost accusatory and vitriolic attack as well. And people who do support or like just the work itself for some reason, you know, you, you were saying, you know, when you grew up kids, you loved some of Lovecraft's work. Um, does that make you a bad person? Well, I think what, what becomes problematic is not that I was the, is that I didn't notice. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the important part. I didn't notice all the language. I didn't notice that, you know, all of the the things he was, you know, that that all of his bad guys were either swarthy or swart-hued or black, or they were, you know, had all of these these sort of cultural markers of Turks, you know. So he was throwing down all these markers, and I didn't see any of that. So so I'm just ingesting that as a little girl, not knowing any better. Um, and not, and not ever even thinking of it, not ever going, yeah, that's right. Or wait, this is really uncomfortable, but just that's the air I was breathing as a little girl reading Lovecraft. And that's where the real risk is, I think, you know, and Ender's Game, I, I go back to that because millions of people have read that, you know, millions and millions yeah. and millions, you know, yeah. uh, you know, that is one of the best read books in America, most read books in America, probably. And it's something, you know, and are these people noticing these things? You know, mercifully, they usually don't go on. They don't make it to the really objectionable stuff. So all you're really left with is a sort of moral, um, the moral issues built into Ender's Game. But, but I would be so much more comfortable if that stuff were part of the conversation. So your little girl picking that up for the first time, you know, is is also aware of sort of the problematic, you know, victim, you know, turnabout stuff that's going on in that. And Lovecraft too, you know, if somebody had said to me, you realize, of course, all of his bad guys are swart hued, you know, and I would have said, what's swart first? And then I would have sure. said, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. yeah, that is weird. 
Is one of the problems that you can produce an annotated edition of Lovecraft that explains that, but you can't produce an annotated edition of Ender's Game? Well, you know, yeah, well, the nice thing about Lovecraft is you can point to a sentence and say this one right here is sexist or this one racist. You know, with Ender's Game, it's more that you have to write an essay sort of unpacking it, which has already been done for for us all. And we can thank Kessel for that. Well, that is one of the for people. I don't know where that was, but you can find it. But uh, Kessel's say on Ender's Game is, I think, one of the key pieces of science fiction criticism of the last 20 years. Um, and and yeah, because he looks at how the whole structure of the not the structure of the book, but the structure of the world within the book uh, is completely manipulative and completely designed to produce a certain outcome. Um, but but here's my argument about defense. And as I say, I don't like to be associated with that book because I, I, I don't I don't think that book does any particular damage to any reader. I don't think it I think it could lead to other books, but my large overall argument is that people who read Lovecraft uh, as children, as I did too, and I didn't know what swarthy meant. I thought it as it turns out it's a code word for Greeks, Jews, Italians, blacks, anybody that was in Brooklyn when he was terrified of them. I don't think people right, yeah. who read Lovecraft went on to read other racist books. I think they went on to read other horror stories. I think they may have ended up reading Stephen King or Peter Straub or Clive Barker or Fritz Leiber or Robert E. Howard. I don't think he led them down that path. I suspect most people who read Ender's Game might want to read other alien space war stories. They might want to read Starship Troopers, which has its own set of problems, but they might want to read The Forever War. Um, so read, in other words, uh, I don't... Exactly, exactly. So in other words, uh, do these books really corrupt youth? I mean, you know, the, the funny thing about being uh, sensitive to, to cultural insults is that we begin to sound like the same people who talk about books corrupting young people that, that we used to be <laughs> fighting against. Yeah. I'm curious to... Sorry, I'm getting my Bible out, and I'm going to start thumping it any minute now. <laughs> I was actually going to ask, um, is there a similar problem with stuff like, well, with, with things like the work of Heinlein, where there are many women in them, but they're not necessarily great portrayals oh. of women? And oh, I roll. Of course, wow. Actually, and I'm going to tell you a, a story from my youth. Um, because I feel in some ways Heinlein is so much more dangerous um, because when I read those stories, because the women appeared to be strong, you know, but they weren't. There was a quote from one of them where it's like somebody's walking in and there's a general and his wife opens the door and our narrator says, you know, meets the wife and says, I took her for a tamed she-wolf, which only increased my respect for the general or something along that lines. And to read that as a young person, where I'm being told, you know, here's this strong woman who is interesting insofar as she can be, she can be sort of uh, tamed by a stronger man. That's a much more insidious message than, oh, you know, uh, um, what's her name in Princess of Mars? Dejathoris. Yes, Dejathoris, who is never anything but, a sort of tokenized, gorgeous icon yeah. that everybody adores and wants and desires. And 
everybody is so respectfully worshipful of her that there was no dangerous, no danger to me as a little girl reading Deja Thoris that I was going to think I was going to grow up to be her. But when I read stories like that, I was like, well, I guess the message I'm getting out of Heinlein is that I can be smart, but only insofar as I'm not quite as smart as the smartest man in the room. And that's a much more insidious, I think, message. It's a much harder one to back away from. And I also think that that is those, and Asimov does this too, you know, that those are, um, those writers were, I think, quite dangerous for women, for girls, when they were young, I say, well, so. And, and what about, they, the, sorry, Gary? Sorry, Gary. I was just going to say, I, I think, I think that they implied you had to make that choice. I mean, right. uh, Asimov's, Asimov's only female character, to be honest, was Susan Calvin. And you can be the world's best robo-psychologist, you can be the most brilliant scientist in the room, but you give up the rest of your life for that. Right, You're exactly. She's not a real woman, you know, in a lot of right. ways. And, and he uses language that implies that. But there is one other one. What's her name in the second volume of Foundation? Who is, again, you know, a tokenized, desired, right. you know, want to, sorry to spoil it, auditors but <laughs> but, uh, but she also is like she she has a role um and by fulfilling that role she has one place in this universe and that is to be desired susan calvin has one role and that that is to be dewomanized and become a scientist and you see it sometimes in the short stories these moments that you see kind of you can hear the dried up womb crying but um, which is unfortunate. I can't believe that. I hope that that is not a phrase that's ever reproduced, but it might be. But yeah, I think so. A piece of movie trivia that I, not very many people know, but you know, Harlan Ellison wrote a screenplay for iRobot, uh, which was which is very interesting because it's based on the stories. The stories are sort of built into the screenplay, but the screenplay itself is a version of Citizen Kane. And he specified in the screenplay that Susan Calvin should have been played by Joanne Woodward. Oh, yeah, that would have been cool. It's interesting because she's somebody who can play the spinster role, but also has sort of this burning intelligence that comes through her portrayals on the yeah. screen. Yeah, she would so have been a great choice, actually. Anyway, that was a piece of trivia. A useful piece of trivia. Where were we? Well, we were in the depths of Susan Calvin and the problematic issues of the appearance of strong women in weakened roles in science fiction. Yeah, yeah. And and also, I mean, I, I look back at things I never I never really noticed when I was now. Admittedly, I was thirteen or fourteen, but you know, when I read The Moon Is a Harsh Mistress, I didn't go, "Ew, squeak! They're marrying fourteen-year-old girls off." But when yeah, you read, but I when, did. <laughs> <laughs> But I was a 14-year-old girl. So. Yeah, well, yes, exactly. I just sort of took it to some of the background of the, I don't know, the open-mindedness or the something of whatever I was reading. I didn't really think about it a whole lot. I think I was uh, more interested in running around and throwing rocks at the earth than I was in thinking about the actual sexual politics of the story at the time. But when you go back at it, back to it, it is somewhat striking. I find I can't actually read Heinlein at all um, anymore. Really? I, I can read Starship Troopers. I can just about get through Starship Troopers. But um, at some point, shortly after I started writing, I found I could no longer read him. And it was the women that were my biggest problem. Um, oh, and I could also get through Puppet Masters. Um, 
for different reasons, I think. But uh, but what it was about, it was largely about, his women that were a problem for me. What about the juveniles? Were they a problem for you? Because there aren't any girls there at all. Right. Yeah. A Starship Trooper was okay, but um, but always, I don't know, I, I just, even when I was a kid, I never responded to his girls the way I responded to stories where, like Andre Norton, for example, um, even when she was writing about men and boys in her, you know, in her uh, um, juveniles, there was always a space that I felt like I could just sort of insert myself. I could, I could put myself into that story I could be that character or I could be and there are some exceptions there are some stories where it's like the character is so clearly a boy that there's no room for a girl to sort of map herself yeah. onto but, I was reading go I was, ahead I was reading a piece recently where someone said that the Beatles were finally becoming historical in other words not <laughs> music that you listen to uh, for itself but music that you encountered in some kind of academic context. Is Heinlein going that path? Is that right? I think he already has. I mean, when people talk about the canon, um, you know, and I'm talking about people outside of our field, mm. because because um, mainstream people love to tell us who our important writers are. But and they and one of the names that comes up because I'll use a lot of the people, the usual mainstream suspects. So you'll hear a lot of of, um, you know, Bradbury, and you'll hear about Shelley, you'll hear about all the usual ones. But when they do finally come down into our trenches, they almost invariably mention Heinlein. And I'm always kind of staggered by that, because I'm like, really? That is, that's the best our field's got? Or is it just that that's a name you know, and that's why you keep coming back to it? That's exactly what it amounts to. I think it's 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 like jazz historians talking about uh, people who are not jazz historians talking about Glenn Miller as though he were one of the great swing bands, when what he was was a very slick commercialized version of what other swing bands were were doing at the same time. So it's a name, but it's not a widely read name. Uh, it's it yeah. kind of in the academic as you kids you know. There's kind of tri for a long time in the journal of science fiction studies there was the triumvirate of Philip K. Dick, Ursula Le Guin, and Stanislaw Lim, and that was pretty much it. Um, mm -hmm. And maybe yeah. Now later, you can add, you can now add Delaney and Bradbury to that. Delaney and Bradbury, and and, and maybe Russ. Although I still am amazed that Joanna Russ isn't as widely read as she ought to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but the, but there is a real sort of failure of vision beyond this <laughs> sort of there tiny is. externally defined canon. Let me suggest a book, which is one of the few books that I read, uh, not when I was a teenager, but certainly when I was just reading science fiction and not involved in it, that did disturb me in terms of its gender roles. And it, it should have been one that, um, that I saw as liberating, but I'm thinking of Anne McCaffrey's The Ship Who Sang. Oh, yeah. It's a very powerful set of stories. It's not really a novel. But the, which deals with a woman who's born with, born with severe deformities and is sealed into a canister inside a spaceship where she becomes the brain of the spaceship. Mm -hmm. And it's very interesting. And she has crushes on her pilots. And mm -hmm. at, at, when, the first time I read that, I found this disturbing. I found this like, okay, this is the dumpy girl sitting on the sidelines at the prom you know, having a crush on on, on on the halfback or whatever, that she has no chance of ever having a physical relationship with. And I think at the end of that series of stories, McCaffrey finally addresses that. 
uh, and that there is a relationship. But but there, but there's this kind of uh, awestruck hero worship on the part of Helga, I think is the name of the ship. Yeah, it is. That it's Hel- I just, Helva. Yeah. It's Helva. Helva, Helva yeah. right. Helva. And actually, I'm, I'm holding my old co- the copy that I read of The Ship Who Sang Even As We Speak, which was printed back in 1976, this particular copy. And the back cover text is fairly appalling. It describes her like this. It says, But the brand behind the ship was entirely feminine, a complex, loving, strong, weak, gentle savage, a personality all woman called Helva. Oh. 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 You know, and I read that. I read that and ate that up. Um, Me too. And... Because it wasn't any, I mean, there wasn't anything else. And it was like Helva. But yeah, Helva is this sort of pathetic, I mean, she's a, and yet, you know, even as you're reading this, you feel that McCaffrey isn't quite there with Helva being that. Because she she talks with uh, about Helva's love of the power of being a ship. You know, the way yeah. she loves things she can do, you know, that she's so strong in so many ways. And she is, in fact, much stronger than her pilots. Um, in fact, first love dies. Um, but what? sorry to spoil people. Uh, <laughs> but uh, that, but like, but yeah, I mean, it's like it was all of all of the Emma McCaffrey stuff from that period is, I think, problematic um, for modern readers. Um, and some of that was that ultimately she was writing a lot of love stories that were also science fiction or fantasy, but she was writing loves women's stories. Nothing she's writing would be out of line with the romance novels of that period. That's probably true, I think, to some extent. The, but the, but the idea is that when she... Yeah, yeah, here, here's another one as long as... Because I was rereading this a couple of weeks ago, and I was really surprised at it. Um, was C.L. Moore's No Woman Born... Uh, which, oh yeah! By that really looks like a feminist story from 1944. I mean, it, it sort of gets most of the moves right. Uh, she's mm-hmm. concerned about whether she's really human or not. She, the gracefulness built into the robot. This is about a famous actress uh, who is bad, badly burned in a fire, but her brain is saved, and she, her brain is saved by a brilliant male scientist who puts it into this gorgeous, flexible robot body. But the points that I remember looking from her point of view are surprisingly modern. Yeah. Well, she realizes she's, I mean, it is a story I still love. And, I mean, some of it, she realizes that she's, she is isolated from humanity by virtue of being better. Yes, exactly. Um, and she's, she's, so she's making an abrupt move, but still, and that's this is something about so many of those writers, and C.L. Moore is one of them. The desirability of the female, the desirability of C.L. Moore's women, is always extreme. You know, Jarrell of Joiree is well, is you know eighty kinds of badass with a sword, but she's also inevitably described with romance novel language. She's got like the red curls and all the rest of it. And in the same way, this is interesting because you take her out of her human body, but you're again using the language of romance novels to describe her sort of fluidity, her sinuousness, the elegance of her, and the sort of desirability of this this robot that encases this woman. And it would be interesting actually to think a little bit about. What what part of it you could this would be a story you could possibly readdress as a writer and say so which part is the sexy part here 
Mm. You know, is it, you know, is the desirability of the brain inside that amazing form or is it the form or is it the power that's now exhibited through the form or is it the fact that she's been created, you know, that she's an I, I artifact and therefore, yeah, I mean, I would love to see somebody she's thinking about that. Because the, the, the guy who, the, the, the scientist who designs her simply sees her as a robot, as a brilliant you know, invention on his own with a with a human brain. Her manager has to deal with the question of uh, here is a woman who is not embodied in a woman's body. In other words, she's not embodied in what I have always thought of as a woman, and he has to deal with that. You know, it's a kind of mm -hmm. feminine robot, still a robot. And it seems right. to me that was a question which C. L. Moore was asking in 1944 that only became a major question in science fiction, maybe in the 90s or 80s with, with people like Greg Egan, the question of um, what happens when you become an uploaded consciousness? What happens when you're no longer in a physical yeah. form? What happens to gender at that point? Well, Moore was and always so, really quite prescient, I think. I, I always feel like she, she's 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 an amazing writer, just absolutely amazing. And the topics that she addressed were, were ambitious and interesting. Mm-hmm. Somebody else who needs to be rediscovered, I suppose. Yeah. But probably not during the rest of this conversation, because, believe it or not, we've reached the end of another hour. Well, there you go. There you go. It we wasn't even hard to find something interesting yeah. to talk about, it as it never, ever is. All. No, it never is. Once we start talking, it's like, once we all get on our hind legs and start barking, we're fine. <laughs> <laughs> even if we don't have front paws with claws in them. That's true. <laughs> well, I would like to thank you very, very much for joining us again, Kidge. It has thank been a joy so and a pleasure. And, and for me too. I look forward to talking to you again sometime. Possibly we'll actually do it in your summer this time rather than waiting and do it, doing it as an annual winter sort of thing to do. Nice. And maybe you'll be snowed in. Or yeah, that ain't gonna happen. No, I'm sorry, it's just never ever gonna happen. And <laughs> uh, well, actually, it could happen. I, I know what it could happen. Better until, until such times as then. And Gary, as always, we'll talk next week. Next week, when we will once again be the Crude Sheet Podcast.